Friends, I invite you to be seated. We have been moving this Lent throughout a series we're shaping around the idea of having a good enough faith. There's a companion devotional book and discussion groups that deal with this from all sorts of directions, and one of the primary ones is this idea that no matter how hard we try, how close to perfection we might come, there are still some inescapable realities about what life will include, and that will be some measure of pain, some measure of grief and sorrow and difficulty and trial. To have a strong faith does not mean that we get to miss out on all of these things that life will surely include. And so to have a good enough faith is to work out what faith looks like in these instances. And this is what the story of Mary and the perfume at dinner before the Passover seems to strike directly at. Let us begin in prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. You should know, and as I mentioned in the children's time, I do not have a green thumb. I have known this myself for a very long time, and yet, and yet, I am still regularly shocked when I inevitably come up against my own limitations, when I discover, discover again and all over again that I can't fix every problem for every plant in my care, though I try. I want to be a dutiful gardener whose every plant thrives and flourishes, but even my best efforts are sometimes to no avail. This lesson was particularly potent with a small bushy plant we bought a few years ago for a vacant space in one of the front flower beds at the parsonage. We had been doing that yearly springtime work of weeding and preparing to lay down new mulch, and we knew we needed something significant there in that little art section of planter next to the driveway. And so without anything in mind, we went shopping and we wandered through the outdoor aisles that contained flowers of every shape and every size. And there are a few promising contenders before every other plant was forgotten because we fell in love with one graceful beauty. I haven't the slightest memory of what kind of plant it was, though I'm certain that we looked at the tag to make sure that it could thrive in the shade and what have you that we had in our yard, and we were delighted to find that it was well-suited to the place we'd like to plant it. It was more expensive than any other plant we have ever bought, which did give me pause because I am so proficient at accidentally killing plants, but I promised I would try extra hard with this one, and I did. I tried so hard. I planted it on a warm spring day, made sure to dig the hole at just the right length, and I put fertilizer down first to ensure the most hospitable environment possible for this plant to root and grow. I watered it faithfully on into the hot summer months, cherishing the rich green hues of its scooped leaves, and I celebrated when it bloomed with a massive pink flower the size of my hand. It was beautiful, and it was fleeting. As there were more blooms to come, but the buds were slow to open and never came more than one at a time, as if the plant couldn't seem to sustain any more than a single flower at once. And as the days passed, the leaves started to hang limp and pale. 
Then the branches started to falter. They became dry and woody and then barren as the plant let go of one offshoot of itself and then another until all that was left was just one struggling remnant branch with a few leaves and absolutely no hope for survival. I've learned since that the mature black walnut tree in our yard, just a few dozen feet away from the flower bed, could be the reason for this. Black walnuts, as it turned out, release a certain sort of chemical toxicity into the soil, which makes it nearly impossible to grow anything within a 75 or 100 foot radius that isn't naturally resilient and tolerant to this particular toxin. Now, I didn't know this at the time, specifically anyway, but I didn't have to. The painful truth was all too apparent. This beloved plant was not going to make it, no matter what I did or how hard I tried. And so I wondered, what do I do now? I wasn't sure if I should keep tending to this plant, which was dying but not yet gone, if I should keep pruning back the dead branches, keep watering and weeding, knowing that everything I did would have no real or lasting effect on the inevitable. But I could not abandon this plant. I loved it. And yet, part of me struggled with the idea that my efforts were wasted on an unchangeable future. Is it still worth it to love something or someone, even when love cannot cure what is bound to come? Mary would say yes, and Jesus would agree. We meet Jesus today in the town of Bethany, where he's having a meal with three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And it is six days before Passover, John tells us. Six days before Passover with the clear understanding for the reader that that means it is just six days before Jesus will have one last meal with his disciples, six days before he will be escorted away by soldiers and taken to the cross. Jesus' disciples may not have known all the details, but Jesus had been preparing them for his own death for some time now, and the sense of it, the inevitability of it all, would have been palpable in the room that day. And so it was there that Mary did something beautiful and something bizarre. She disappears for a moment, and then she returns with a massive bottle of perfume, three quarters of a pound of perfume that she breaks and pours all over Jesus' feet, wiping them dry with her hair. It was an excessive amount of of perfume, three quarters of a pound, an an excessively expensive perfume, costing a full year's salary. What would that equate to today? $50,000? $100,000? Whatever it was, however much it was, it would have seemed like too much. And so Judas says, what everyone is thinking, this is wasteful. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? Now, of course, John makes it clear, Judas has ulterior motives. Besides being the one already set up to betray Jesus, Judas carried the money bag for the group, and he helped himself to what he wanted when he wanted it. He was a thief, and so he would have been happy to help disperse the proceeds from the sale of the perfume to the poor and to his own pockets. But speaking to Judas and to us all, Jesus refutes this mentality and reveals how such mild practicality can hide more base and selfish desires. Jesus says, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. 
the surprisingly cynical take from Jesus, at least at first glance, because it sounds rather like Jesus is writing off any obligation to care for the poor because they're not going anywhere, as though he takes priority. But Jesus isn't selfish like that, and he's saying something different. Jesus is actually quoting a verse from the book of Deuteronomy, part of a section where God is instructing the Israelites how to care for the poor in their society in a number of ways, including by completely erasing all debts every seven years in what was known as the year of Jubilee. And so it is in this context that the Israelites are told that they will always have the poor among them. And the verse continues saying, therefore, open your hand generously. The implication is clearly that because the poor will always be present among us, that we must always be ready to respond with generosity. It directly rejects the idea that anyone should limit their care of the poor because, well, the year of Jubilee is coming, perhaps, or because they think more broadly that anyone else could do and be that generous instead of them. It rejects the idea that we can avoid caring for the needy directly in front of us. Even when we are certain that our generosity will be wasted, when we think it might be unnecessary or ineffective, when we know it won't come close to touching the root cause of poverty, when we suspect that there might be others who need it more, to hold back for the sake of practicality is to hide our inclination to hold on to what we think is ours, while the faithful response is to be generous with the person God has put in front of us. The poor will always be with us, indeed, which makes them a convenient excuse for escaping the obligation of generosity, never helping the individual because it won't even be noticed across the breadth of the poor that there are in the world. But Jesus, who once declared that caring for the least of God's children was the same as caring for him, says to Judas and to us all, you won't always have me. In whatever form Jesus is present before us, it is right to respond generously and extravagantly to care for the one who bears the image of Christ in their creation. And Jesus is in front of Mary. Leave her alone, he says. This perfume was for my burial, and this is how she used it. It was the practice in Jesus' time to anoint the body of a deceased person before burial, to pour fragrant oils over their hands and their feet, honoring the one who is no longer with us, honoring the way that they moved and experienced the world, honoring the one who once walked among us and held our hearts in their hands. It is the crowning act of love before someone is given over to their final resting place, an act of love that could not change what was to come and yet made it more bearable all the same. While Jesus has not yet died in this moment, he has had one foot placed in the grave by forces beyond anyone's control, and Mary will not miss the opportunity for a show of love. He may not be buried yet, but it's not too early, and the perfume which filled the house with its scent will surely linger on his feet a few days longer as Jesus walks the path laid out before him. It doesn't change what is to come. And Mary knows better than most that the promise of resurrection at the end does not remove the grief and pain of the immediate future. It's just a chapter earlier in the Gospel of John that she grieved and Jesus cried over the death of Lazarus, her brother, 
whom Jesus would raise from the dead. It does not eliminate the grief in the present to know that something better is to come. And so Jesus, who has great things yet to come, still has trials and tribulations immediately before him. And so Mary anoints his feet, and the perfume and the love lingered through all of what was to come. Jesus was tortured and killed in an effort to prove to him and everyone watching that he was nothing, not a king, not a savior, and done so in a painful, degrading, demeaning fashion. And Mary's anointing could not have changed this inevitable reality except that throughout the whole ordeal, the scent of the perfume lingered and it whispered, you are loved, you are loved, you are loved. In the garden, when Jesus prayed in agony and anguish as his disciples slept, the scent of the perfume would still have lingered. A reminder, he was loved. When he was kissed by Judas and arrested by soldiers, taken away, the scent of the perfume would have lingered. A reminder, he was loved. When he was tried and tortured and mocked as a king who would never rule, the scent of the perfume lingered. A reminder, he was loved. As he stumbled, carrying his own cross down the street, the perfume on his feet lingered still. A reminder, he was loved. And when Jesus gave up his last breath, his life breathing his last, could he smell it even then in the last breath of air he would ever pull into his lungs in that life? Scent of perfume. A reminder, he was loved. Life can be so dehumanizing. And while we cannot always offer the cure, love can still offer the counter-argument that can pull us back to ourselves with a repeated chorus. You are loved, you are loved, you are loved. And so the love lingers from day into day throughout whatever might come. This is the gift that the church can offer. There is something important about standing with courage to love in the midst of death. We want to avoid it. We don't want to admit that life is fragile and that we cannot solve every problem but to welcome that vulnerability, to acknowledge the inevitability, is to have the chance to speak love where love must be heard. This is a gift the church can offer, to love even when love cannot cure, to love even when love does not make sense, to love even when love won't change a doggone thing and yet changes everything. This is the gift the church can offer, the gift that the church has for all of us to hold and to keep and to share. With frozen casseroles left on porches and meals after funeral, love lingers. With handwritten cards and late-night phone calls that do not change the inevitable and yet offer the reminder, you are loved. With rides to the doctor, or loads of laundry done with hugs and tears and the chance to hold a fragile hope for one another with every foolish and absurd and extravagant act of love that cannot change a thing and yet 
changes everything. We offer a reminder to one another. You are loved. You are loved. You are loved. This is our gift to cling to and to share. And if its practicality is ever questioned, if it is ever suggested that we abandon the plant that floundered and wilted because it could do no other thing, let Jesus, the master gardener who prunes and tends to us all, speak back. Tell the world to leave us alone, that love is always worthwhile. Is it still worth it to love something or someone even when love can't cure what is bound to come? Always. Always. And that is how God loves us. Thanks be to God.